Hey everybody, welcome back to the I Play 2 podcast, where relatives of famous athletes, entertainers, and musicians get to tell their story. I'm your host, Rob Adler. This week, surfer Steve Hawk joins the show. He competed in college while at UC Santa Barbara and later became the editor of Surfer Magazine. Also, Steve has served all across the world from Costa Rica to South Africa and even Antarctica. His brother, Tony Hawk, is a skateboarding legend and the first to complete the 900. And who gave Tony that first skateboard? None other than Steve. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rob. Pleasure to be here. So how did you get into surfing? Well, I grew up in San Diego, and when I was young, like five years old, my parents opened a hamburger stand on the beach in Ocean Beach in San Diego. Anyone in San Diego who knows that beach, this was before the pier was there. And it was a summer job they had. We would be on the beach from seven or eight in the morning until sunset, seven days a week, all summer long. My mom used to joke about the fact that the lifeguards were my babysitter. So I would just wander around and play in the sand and play in the shore break. I learned how to body surf at a very young age, and I fell in love with the ocean at a very young age. It just kind of all came from there. I didn't actually get my first surfboard till after my parents had sold that. And then it wasn't until I was 12 or 13 that I actually picked up surfing. I was very familiar with how waves worked, and I was comfortable getting rolled around in the shore break and stuff like that. You mentioned you initially started body surfing. Like, who taught you how to body surf? It's kind of like riding a bike. Someone just pushes you, and you drive away until you crash. I can't say anyone taught me. It was more a matter of just having fun and then eventually getting to understand the rhythm of the waves and If you just sort of let go and don't fight it, dive under the waves and let them roll you, eventually one wave dissipates and you can come up for air before the next one. It was really just all very natural. You see that a lot in places like Hawaii. You'll watch little kids in the shore break, say the North Shore of Oahu on a small day, and they're just laughing and having fun. And then some tourists will come in and get slammed by a wave and start to panic because they just don't understand that it's not really that dangerous if you have any sense at all of what you're doing. As a kid, I used to love body surfing off the coast of Destin in Florida. I loved it, did it for several years, and then I got slammed, and it took me a long time to get over that. What do you slammed, like held under? Slammed, like headfirst to the sand. Yeah. I think the thing that panics most people is that if they have the sense that the wave's holding them down and they can't get to the surface, that's when people really panic. It's just a matter of relaxing because you can hold your breath much, much longer than you think you can. And the more you panic, the sooner you need a breath and it becomes a bad cycle. My sisters are both really good body surfers. My mom body surfed into her mid-70s. The reason why we ended up in San Diego was it all kind of dates back to World War II. My dad was in the Navy, and he was a pilot. He flew torpedo bombers, and he was stationed in Coronado in San Diego, and then he was stationed in Hawaii for a while. Then after the war, he ended up in San Diego. So he had fallen in love with the ocean. He was out there with me at a very early age. It was a very much a family thing. You mentioned your dad was in the Navy. Was he at Pearl Harbor for the bombing? 
No, in 41, he was 18 when Pearl Harbor got bombed. And he enlisted because of that and quickly became a pilot and was in the Pacific Theater in 44, 45. Wow, that's phenomenal to hear. I don't think I knew that. He didn't talk about it much. He was both proud of it and I think he was a pacifist. He didn't like war. You mentioned your mom body surfed into her 70s. So I have to ask between your mom, your sisters, you, your brother, and your dad, who's the best body surfer? Wow. I like to go out and get pounded in heavy shore break and get inside the tube so I can see the barrel for just a little bit. My mom would go out on smaller days, on softer days, and jump into waves and ride them all the way to shore. So I'd say my mom. My mom's probably the best body surfer in our family. You mentioned you got your first surfboard around the age of 12. But how did you decide to make the transition from body surfing into surfing? Oh, because it was just cool. I was 12, 13. So this would have been mid to late 60s, right around the time of the Beach Boys and all that. I just loved the sensation of being propelled towards shore by this moving band of energy. I remember very clearly the first time I stood up on a board where I was on the unbroken face of a wave. And it just felt like I was flying. It's hard to get in that position when you're a beginner, but the first couple of times you do it, it becomes addictive. And then you say, okay, I have to learn this thing. And it's not easy. But I remember right away, like the first time I stood up, this is what I want to do. You don't need to be all stressed out and get in the position. And I remember kind of relaxing and kind of posing a little bit. There's this sort of matador aspect to it, where it's like, I'm in this maelstrom, but I'm cool about it. And I remember very much that that sense of performance and dance was part of it from the very beginning. What was the surfing scene like in California during the late 60s and 70s? I got into the sport right kind of at the tail end of the first big boom. The Gidget, Beach Boy, Frankie and Annette when it became kind of a cultural thing and people who didn't live near the coast were suddenly aware of surfing. From the very beginning, I think surfers have always felt themselves to be a little bit apart and maybe a little bit above mainstream society. And that's always been an unfortunate side of it. But then a change in the 70s, which was when I really got into it and it was my whole life, then it was much more of a kind of hippie, drugged out, Jeff Spicoli era. Everybody had long hair and you were going to surf. You were going to not live the nine to five job. Who were some of the surfing stars that kind of came out that maybe you tried to emulate? So initially, there was a moment in surf history in about 66, 67, when surfboards went from nine to 10 feet long down to eight feet, seven feet, six feet within just a couple of year period. It was called the shortboard era. And so my first heroes which I found through Surfer Magazine, were guys like Jock Sutherland, Jeff Hackman, who were famous because they kind of made the transition from being longboard stars to shortboard stars. And then the guy named Jerry Lopez out of Hawaii, who was famous for the way he surfed pipeline, that really heavy wave on the North Shore of Oahu. So those guys were my first heroes for sure. And then... Not long after that, in the early 80s, it was guys like Rabbit Bartholomew, Mark Richards, Sean Thompson, Dane K. Aloha. 
the guys who kind of dominated in the early 80s. For people who aren't as familiar with surfing, what's the difference between the shortboard and the longboard in terms of riding and how you approach it and things like that? Longboards are clunkier. They have a lot more volume. And they also are wider at the nose and the tail. So they're not nearly as maneuverable. They're very good at catching waves because they have a lot of flotation. You can paddle them faster than you can a shortboard. Shortboards, any board under 6.6 tends to sink a little bit when you lie on it. So when you paddle those boards, it's almost more like swimming than paddling. Whereas when you're up on a bigger board, it's almost like you're on a canoe and just go faster. Shortboards are harder to paddle and they require a little steeper wave. But once you're up and riding on a board like that, you can do turns in the most critical part of the wave, much closer to the curl of the wave. And you can actually get inside the curl of the wave much easier on a shortboard. Nowadays, of course, guys are riding them like skateboards. They're busting big airs off the top of the lip and doing 360 airs and alley-oops and all the variation of rail grabs that you find in skateboarding. The shortboard revolution changed everything. For you, did you prefer to do the shortboard or the longboard? My first board was a shortboard. I came into it right at the beginning of the shortboard era. I never rode longboards. Nowadays, as I get older, I'm in my mid-60s now, my boards have gotten longer, but I still haven't given over to a true longboard. My go-to board right now is about seven foot. I'm impressed you're still surfing. Yeah, it keeps me alive. Where is your favorite place to surf? Do you have a free day and you say, I'm going to pick up the board and go? Where do you like to go? So I live in Half Moon Bay, California, which is about 20 miles south of San Francisco. I just go to the local beaches within four or five miles of my house. Ocean Beach in San Francisco, Montera. I like them because they tend not to get crowded. There's a lot of elbow room and they're well exposed to the North Pacific swells and even swells out of the South. So there's always something to surf as long as the wind isn't too strong. That's my go-to place on a kind of a daily basis. But my favorite place to surf these days, if I had a choice, is Alaska. Wow. So what appeals to you about Alaska and where do you surf in Alaska? The appeal is that there are thousands of miles of coastline up there that nobody else is surfing. There's really one guy running legitimate surf charters on a boat. And you can really only get to the waves through a boat because there's almost no road access to the beach in Alaska. If you were to take the entire coast of Alaska, put it on the East Coast, it would go from pretty much Maine to Miami, Florida. And there's just a handful of surfers on that whole coast. And it's very serrated coast. There's a lot of points and headlands and river mouths and bays and coves, which are what you want. You want the coast to be kind of broken up to break the waves up so there are curls to ride. But the big thing is the water is not nearly as cold as people think. I think the earliest I've been there is March and the latest I've been there is October. And it's about the same temperature as it is here in Half Moon Bay in the middle of winter. Actually, the northeast coast of the United States, like Massachusetts, New York, in winter it is much, much colder than anything I've ever surfed in Alaska. They'll surf when it's 10 below zero. I've never paddled out in Alaska where the air was colder than 35 or the water was colder than 40. And also, you're in Alaska. 
you look at shore and it's the most beautiful stretch of coast you can find and there's no one around. That is just awesome. I don't know what else to say other than that's just fantastic. It's really amazing. And I've gotten to know this guy who owns this boat, who does these charters. It's called the Milo. His name is Mike McCune. If you're listening to this, just Google Alaska Surfboat Milo, and you'll see what I'm talking about with the photos. I've gone on three trips with him, and I brought a bunch of friends on these trips, and everyone I brought, everyone has said, can't wait to do that again. It's not dangerous. The waves actually are smaller there than they are down here in Half Moon Bay. Because the waves that we get are created by the storms up there in the Gulf of Alaska. And those storms move toward California and away from Alaska. So swells are generated on the front edge of storms and they move with the storm. So the waves up there tend not to be that big. In fact, the problem is sometimes it's too small. Where I live here in Happen Bay, we have a surf spot called Mavericks. Maybe you've heard of that? I have. It's probably the biggest surfable wave in North America. And I don't think there's anything close to an equivalent of a Mavericks up in Alaska. I would have never thought that surfing in Alaska would be a thing. It really kind of isn't. There's not that many people doing it. But the few who've been up there kind of know. There's this whole troublesome thing with localism in the surf world where if you know about a good spot, you don't tell anybody because you don't want it to get crowded and you don't want to piss off the locals by exposing a spot, which was a lesson I learned in the most powerful way when I was editing Surfer Magazine. But in Alaska, it's not an issue. There's a few places where there are locals, but for the most part, we're at spots that no one's ever surfed before and no one will for years. So I would be happy to give latitude and longitude coordinates to every place I've ever surfed up there because it's just not going to get crowded. Other than Alaska, you've surfed all over the world. Where's your favorite place to surf? Just in terms of the quality of the waves, disregarding crowd and travel time, there's an island chain in Indonesia off of Sumatra called the Mentawais that is widely regarded as the best quality surf in the world. I had the good fortune to go there and surf those waves. They're so perfect and are so uniform, they almost seem man-made. That's a dream spot. When you're in the water there, you're often kind of competing with really, really good surfers who are in really good shape. Just a whole different kind of thing. That's more about just trying to get the best waves you can. We've talked about Indonesia and Alaska. I know you surfed in Antarctica and one of the very select few people to do that. Before we get to actually surfing there, what was the trip like to get there? It turned out that we kind of lucked out because we were all terrified about the actual travel there because we'd heard so many horror stories. So what we did was we flew into this town of Ushuaia, which is the southernmost city in Argentina. And we sailed or motored, I should say, across what's called the Drake Passage, which is the stretch of open ocean between the tip of South America and the northernmost part of Antarctica. And that's usually about a three and a half to four day sail if there's weather. 
and it's widely regarded as one of the most treacherous crossings on the planet. So we were all geared up to just be hunkered down and basically vomiting for three days. But it turns out we had tailwinds, we had light winds, we made it in like two and a half to three days. And we really, really got lucky on that passage. But once we got down there, we had a couple of shorter crossings between islands that got pretty gnarly and scary. But even those were kind of a minor by Antarctica standards. You get there and I imagine there's a whole bunch of glaciers. What's it like to surf with that in the background? The thing about Antarctica is it's actually not a good surf trip. Most of the landforms there come jutting out of the water vertically. So it's cliff faces coming straight out of the water. And that's not what you want to surf. You want a sloping shoreline so the waves can break gradually. So we ended up going past a lot of areas that were just completely unsurfable. You know, it was just waves crashing up against cliffs. The icebergs and the glaciers themselves are definitely not surfable. So we were actually in Antarctica for about three weeks. And we had one good day of surf, which was at this glacier base on this island called Low Island. The glaciers there are in retreat. They reached their terminus and now they're all going backwards. And this glacier, when it had reached its outermost point, it kind of acted like a bulldozer. As it was moving out toward the ocean, it just pushed rocks in front of it. And then when it retreated, it left this line of rocks offshore that ended up making kind of a perfect reef pass surf break. It was slanted toward the waves in just the way you want so that the waves would kind of peel down like a point break. If for any surfers who were listening, it kind of reminded me of trestles in San Diego. It had pulled back maybe a third of a mile from where it had left this reef. So when we pulled up to it on the boat, we're checking it from behind. So we're looking from the ocean towards shore. And that's a much more difficult way to check a surf spot because it's harder to tell how good they are or whether there are rocks in the lineup or how shallow it is and all that stuff. But we were watching these waves peel off from the back and we thought that looks like a good wave. Once we suited up and got out there, we realized it really, really was a good wave. But the most interesting part about it was that this reef had been pushed up by the glacier and then the waves would break on the reef. And then between the reef and the shoreline was this big lagoon that was deep. And then at the inland end of that was this glacier face that was maybe 400 feet high, just giant wall of ice, but it was so far away from us that we didn't have to worry about ice fall or anything like that. But we were close enough to it that when there was a big calving event, when ice would fall into the water, it would create this giant kind of tsunami that would then come out toward us from shore. But by the time it got to us, it would only be like shoulder high. But we had these backwash waves coming off the glacier every 15 or 20 minutes. And there was so much ice in the bay kind of getting sucked out and coming up the reef that when you'd ride a wave, you could actually hear these little chunks of ice, like these baseball-sized chunks of ice, pinging off your fins of your board and off the rails of your board. It felt like we were on psychedelics. It was sensory overload. And on top of that, the waves were really good. So we were all really 
just stoked surfers going really fast on these waves, but having all this ice and backwash from the glacier, that was, it was crazy. I've seen a picture. I think your brother, Tony, actually posted it on Instagram of you and the dichotomy of the size difference and just seeing this glacier in the background with this person on the board is one of the coolest photos in sports or anywhere really that I've ever seen. It's, it's kind of ridiculous that that photo happened to be of me because I was by far not the best surfer on that trip. We had Chris Malloy, who's a world-renowned pro, my friend Doc Reniker, who surfs Mavericks all the time. And it just happened that Art Brewer, the photographer, was in position. And on that photo, I'm just exiting the wave. So I've ridden it and I've angled my board to come out over the back of it. It's called a kick out. I've just finished the ride and I'm still standing, but I'm about to settle back down onto my board to paddle back out. So it's not a fancy maneuver. It's just a simple kick out. So it's looking from the boat toward shore. And the background is this 400 foot wall of ice. I have a good friend, Matt Warshaw, was the former editor of Surfer before me, who's kind of the sports most renowned historian. He wrote the Encyclopedia of Surfing and the History of Surfing. He has given me for that photo, saying that never has a surfer been a smaller part of a frame in a surf photo that's gotten some notice. Hey, sometimes you're just in the right spot at the right time, right? Exactly right. And the guy who shot that photo, by the way, Art Brewer, was widely regarded as one of the top two or three surf photographers of all time. He just passed about six months ago. He was a good friend. Going back a little bit here, you surfed and were the president of your high school surf club in San Diego. How big of a deal was it? That was nothing. No one cared. There were no famous surfers at that point. Certainly there were no surfers who were famous outside of the surf world. There was no Kelly Slater. There was no equivalent of a Tony Hawk, that kind of thing. The only reason why I got to be president of the surf club was because no one else really wanted to organize it. And it was just me and a bunch of friends. It wasn't an official sport. It was a club. There was no varsity or any of that kind of stuff. We certainly didn't have letterman's jackets. It was just a club and we would surf against three or four other schools in San Diego a few times a year. And we got our picture in the yearbook as the surf club. I think there's like 10 of us in this photo. I self-identified as a surfer for sure. And I was proud of it. I just thought it was cool. I remember I would surf sometimes before school and get up really early, get up at like 4.30, be in the water 5.30, because we lived inland, surf for an hour, get to school. And I was proud to walk into class with like flip-flops and sand on my feet. Other than among a few of my friends, it didn't impart any kind of social status at all. I liked how you started that. I had to kind of stifle a chuckle with it didn't really matter. <laughs> In that time period, though, at least for you, you mentioned you self-identified as a surfer. It had to at least mean something, right? It meant a few things for me. It definitely had a big impact on the direction of my life on a number of levels. One of them was just kind of cultural and social, which was that surfers were always kind of seen as rebels, as people who weren't going to just go live by the regular rules, because crafting a life where you could 
follow the vagaries of the weather and the ocean was what it was all about. So there was this kind of countercultural aspect to it, for sure. There was also the kind of profound attachment to the natural world, which became much stronger as I got a little older. And it was just this visceral satisfaction you got out of being out in the water, especially the ocean. I don't know if there's anything that is more sensually satisfying than diving through a breaking wave because you see it, you hear it, you taste it, you smell it. It hits you at every level. And then on top of that, there's the athleticism. So it keeps you in shape. And then there's the performative aspect to it. When you actually turn and get a wave, once you kind of get a little bit good at it, it becomes a bit of a dance. And there's a whole style aspect to it, kind of minimizing your body movement to maximize your speed and striking a little bit of a pose. Also, what I love about the performative aspect to it Unlike, say, skateboarding, which is on a static platform, whereas surfing, so much of what impresses me about a really, really good surfer is the way they react and improvise to this thing that's ever-changing and unpredictable. That's kind of the coolest part. There's all that going on as well. And that ended up becoming much more important to me in terms of surfing's attraction than the cultural aspect of it. It's all about getting out there in the natural world and battling this element and putting yourself in the right place at the right time because you've developed this knowledge of how waves work and then getting up and standing and letting the wave propel you. It's magical. When you said you're surprised I'm still surfing at 67, that's why. There's nothing like it. When you're, as you described it, improvising on a wave, has there ever been a situation where the improvisation has gone wrong? Well, for sure, for everybody, yeah. But again, unlike skateboarding, it's a liquid medium, and it's pretty rare that the fall hurts you. I've been surfing for 55 years now, and I've been hurt one-tenth as many times as my brother. Yeah, it doesn't hurt the fall in surfing. You mentioned also that surfers generally tend to be very fit, I'm guessing it's a little bit different now than when you were coming up and surfing, but is there any kind of regimen outside of surfing, whether it's like a cardio element or a weightlifting element that surfers do to make sure that they stay in optimal surfing shape? For a lot of people, yeah, not for me. I've never been one to exercise for exercise's sake. And it's one of my failings as a surfer. I would be a much better surfer if I did more cardio work and things like that. So I don't, but I know a lot of people who do. And I think the most important thing is stretching. You have to stretch. And then doing some cardio or swimming helps. But it's not just about the leg strength and all of that. So much of it is about stretching so that you don't stiffen up from all the paddling. Because paddling a surfboard is a very unnatural thing. There's a handful of exercises you can do to make it so you don't end up almost crippled from it. And I've started to do more of that. But it's not like football or basketball where you absolutely have to stay in tip-top shape. Other than surfing, you just mentioned football or basketball. What other sports did you participate in? I know you were big into skateboarding as well. I played Little League when I was small and I played basketball. But all that, I quit by junior high school. I had a skateboard, but that was, for me, really just kind of an extension of surfing. 
I rode skateboards as if they were surfboards and I would kind of look for banks where you could pretend you were surfing. I've never done an aerial. I've never dropped into a vertical quarter pipe or half pipe. Part of that is that I was a little old. My era preceded all that. But another big part of it for me was that Tony, once he started to get good, like at 12, 13, I was happy just to go sit and watch him. I stopped because I wanted to watch him. Are there any skills from surfing that transfer into skateboarding that you were able to use? Like, even if you're not doing the tricks, just to be able to go ride the skateboard? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, just being comfortable standing in that sideways stance and going fast and doing turns, that skill translates both ways. Surfers are pretty comfortable on skateboards and skaters, once they figure out how to get to their feet, they're pretty comfortable on surfboards. And both are comfortable on snowboards. Snowboarding felt very natural to me. Yeah, I'm a klutz. I tend to stay away from all of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, you're not alone. When I go to the beach and I was at San Diego a couple years ago, I would love when I would see somebody go out and just try to ride a wave. I'm sitting there going, yeah, I can't do that, but that is really neat to watch. Kind of like you watching your brother. Do you and your brother ever go surfing together? Uh-huh. Yeah, especially when he was younger. I used to take him all the time. When he was 13, 14, 15, before he could drive, I had graduated from college and I'd moved back to San Diego. I was working full time, but I would pick him up after work or on weekends and take him surfing. That was how he really kind of got into surfing. But at that point, he was really making a name for himself as a skater. So he didn't have the time. The one thing about surfing that Tony will admit to is that he doesn't like to go out in waves that are powerful where he has to paddle through them to get out to them. He doesn't like the paddling part of it. Lately, his go-to thing is to either rent or get invited to one of the artificial wave pools. Kelly Slater has one here in Central California. And then there's a really fun one in Waco, Texas. The last few times I've really had serious surf sessions with Tony, they've been at those wave pools because he invites me along. When you decided that you couldn't make surfing as a competitor into, a, I guess, a career, how did you get involved with Surfer Magazine? The two things I wanted to be all my life from a pretty early age were I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to be a surfer. And in college, I was an English major and I took a creative nonfiction writing class from a guy who ended up becoming a really important part of my life, teacher, mentor, a guy named Barry Farrell. He kind of persuaded me to take a stab at writing. So I ended up getting a job at a small newspaper in San Diego, not long after I graduated from college. And you know how it goes in newspapers. Back in those days, you'd go from a little weekly to a little daily to a bigger daily. And I ended up being a daily newspaper reporter for about 10 years. My last job in newspapers was at the Orange County Register, which at that point was, I think, the third biggest paper in California. And it just happened that both of the major surf magazines were also based in Orange County, Surfer and Surfing Magazine. So in my spare time, because I was sort of the token surfer at every newspaper I worked at, I started freelancing for the surf mags. I did that for about two or three years. And then the guy I mentioned earlier, Matt Warshaw, he was the editor of Surfer. He quietly announced that he was retiring and they hired a headhunter and the headhunter tracked me down and I got that job. I became the editor of Surfer. So that's how that happened. The professor that you named, Mr. Farrell, was he the same one that wrote the book called Pat and Rolled? 
Yes, you know that book. I know that book. He actually wrote for Time Magazine and Maybe Life, but I don't know. But he wrote a bunch of stuff in the, I'd say the early 60s, maybe early 70s, somewhere in there. Yeah. You didn't Google me and find him. I have a couple of friends who are writers and creative writers and poets. You hear a lot of names and some of them actually stick with you. So when Barry died in the mid 80s, I had become really good friends with him and his wife and daughter. And I went on and edited a book that's a collection of his pieces called How I Got to Be This Hip, which is out of print, but available very cheap through any used online bookstore. He was one of the best magazine writers of his generation. His best friend was John Gregory Dunn, who wrote the foreword for this book. His other friends, Calvin Trillin and John McPhee, I got them both to write cover blurbs for the book. Yeah, Barry changed my life. How did your love of writing kind of start and then grow? I remember how it started. I wrote a little stupid poem when I was like in sixth grade that got anthologized by the San Diego school district. And then I wrote a short story in junior high school. I wrote from the point of view of a little kid who wasn't a bad kid getting so pissed that he punched another kid. And I tried to imagine what that would feel like from his point of view and just felt like, oh, I got this. I can put myself in this kid's shoes and write something that will be effective. And then I got some positive feedback from other classmates on this one paragraph. Getting positive feedback for something I'd written was so effective. I said, I want more of that. I want to write stuff that people are affected by and entertained by and where they might say, good job. And then once I met Barry in college and he gave me some positive feedback and said, you know, you could probably do this if you want. That changed everything. Because then I got the confidence to actually go out and try to do it. What's a favorite non-surfing story you ever wrote? When I was at the Orange County Register, and I did a piece on a kid who had Down syndrome named Paul Gao, and he was in a program at high school where they were training him to someday live independently from his parents. And he got a job at a Carl's Jr. And I followed him around several hours a day three or four days a week for a month and a half while he got trained to do this job, his first day on the job, his first day cashing his first check, going on a date with his girlfriend. I got to immerse myself in this kid's world. That was one of my favorite pieces I ever did. Still have a copy of that story? Of course. Not digitally. <laughs> I actually have hard newspaper copies of it. That's a cool story. I like that story. When you got hired at Surfer Magazine as the editor, is that a dream job for you, basically, because you can combine your love of surfing with your love of writing? Absolutely. No question. I hadn't told anybody that I was in the running for it. And when I got it, I called up one of my old surf buds from college. And I said, dude, I just got like the dream job. And he literally said, what, like editor or surfer or something? And I said, yeah. Actually, exactly that. <laughs> that magazine had a big impact on me when I was a teenager. My older sister, Pat, who's five years older than me, she had a boyfriend who was trying to court her. And he gave me a bunch of his old surfer mags, kind of as a way, I think, to get to her. 
And I remember pouring through them and thinking, oh my God, because you're looking at the pictures of the best surfers on the best waves and it brings the fantasy into your home. It was one of those things that made me fall in love with the sport. And then years later, I walked into that same office building in San Juan Capistrano and I was the boss. It was thrilling and completely terrifying at the same time because it was an institution. It called itself the Bible, the sport. It was the first surf magazine in the country. It had a pretty good circulation at the time, like 110,000, something like that. And I just thought, God, don't f*** this up. I once saw an article that describes you as the Patrick Swayze of, I guess, surf writing, surf editing. How did you feel when you saw it? So that was written by a friend of mine who used to work for me there named Rob Gilly. It made me wince a little bit, but it was funny. But he was talking about Patrick Swayze in the movie. It's Roadhouse. Yes. And the idea was that I came in and I think he says I started kicking ass because there had been a lot of people who've been writing for the magazine who I thought could do better work. And I started being a little bit more hands-on with my editing than the people before me. And I think that's what he was referring to. I was unafraid to rewrite other people's shit. That sounds like an editor. <laughs> yeah. So how long were you at Surfer Magazine? About eight years. I started in 90. I left in 98, I think. So I was there when Kelly Slater won his first title and Towin Surfing was invented. You decide to leave. What were some of the reasons you decided to leave the dream job? That was also kind of came down to a really specific moment. I remember it was probably 97. And at that point, we had started to do an annual, we call it the big issue, that was where the trim size was like twice as big as the normal one. So it was this giant coffee table book. The ad guys would sell the hell out of it. So they were 250 pages thick. And so we'd always have these big planning sessions for the big issue. I had this planning session at my house in San Clemente with all of our staff on the editorial side and most of our major freelance contributors, photographers and writers and all that. So there's like 15 people sitting around this table and I had ordered pizza and I kind of calling this meeting to order. So we're going to start brainstorming what we're going to do in the big issue. It just suddenly hit me that I didn't have the passion that I should have if I'm going to run this meeting. The bloom was off the rose. I just felt a little cynical about it. It's only so much you can write about surfing. I realized now I could keep writing about surfing till I died. But every year we would do kind of the same stories over and over. We do a story on the North Shore of Oahu. We do a story on the World Champ. You'd have these things you kind of had to cover. I just felt like I had to get out of there before my lack of enthusiasm trickled down onto the page. And literally like that night, talked to my wife about it. And a week or two later, told my boss that I wanted to make an exit plan. I stayed on for a long time, six or eight months. We had a pretty smooth transition. Also, a big part of that was that I had recently hired this guy named Evan Slater, who's now head of marketing for Billabong International. Evan was as talented an editor and writer as I've ever hired and best hire I've ever made in any job. And I realized that here was a guy who was more than capable of taking the reins when I left. So I just felt comfortable, like I was going to leave the magazine in good hands. So that was how I ended up leaving. 
So you leave Surfer Magazine. Where did your journalistic career take you from there? Right after Surfer, I became the executive editor of a website called Surfline.com. I did that for actually a couple of years. And then the dot-com bubble burst. And I had a giant staff and we all got laid off eventually. Then I went off and I freelanced for a while. I helped to launch my brother's nonprofit. I was the founding executive director of the Tony Hawk Foundation. I did that for a couple of years and then decided that was not my passion either. So I handed it off. I went back to Surfer Publications, which owned a bunch of different magazines in the action sports world. They owned Skateboarder and Snowboarder. And I became the kind of editorial director on a contract basis for all six or seven of those publications. I did that for a couple of years. And then I got one of the best jobs of my life. I lucked out and got to go to Hollywood and work with David Milch, the guy who created Deadwood and NYPD Blue. His show after Deadwood was a surf show. That's the only reason I got hired. I was like the surf consultant and staff writer for the show called John from Cincinnati that only lived one season, but that was one of the best gigs I've ever had. How did that come about? One of the co-creators of this show was a novelist named Kem Nunn, K-E-M-N-U-N-N, who had written a couple of surf novels, who had written some stuff for me when I was a surfer. He and I had become friends. And Kem called me and said, you need to come up here and meet with Dave Milch because I've told him about you and I think I can get you on the show. So that's how that came about. Well, that's pretty cool. I actually remember the show. I don't know how much of it I watched. You wouldn't be alone if you didn't watch the whole thing. That's a cool thing to have on a resume, if nothing else. It was spectacular. Milch was such a freak and such a genius. And they gave him so much leeway that he would write scenes one day and they would shoot him the next. So as a staffer on his show, you'd be in the room with him while he was imagining these scenes and this dialogue. If it was surf-related, I was kind of the one who would say, well, here's what someone would say as a surfer, because he wanted to make sure that it was kind of accurate to the culture. And then the next day they would shoot it and we got to be there during rehearsals. We often got to watch the actual production and get to watch these incredible actors deliver lines that I had written the day before. It was a ridiculous and unrealistic introduction to Hollywood because that's just not the way it works. Are you still writing or have you hung up the quill? Oh, no, I'm still writing. After that gig, I ended up getting a job at the Sierra Club. I edited the magazine of the Sierra Club for six years. And then after Sierra Club, I went and became the editor of a magazine at Stanford Business School called Stanford Business, which was a far, far cry from Surfer Magazine, as you can imagine. I did that for about five years, and I just retired from that. That was my last nine-to-five job. I retired from that about two years ago. So I've been officially retired for a couple of years, but I'm still freelancing for some of the surf publications. My friend Kim, the guy who brought me into that TV show, he and I got hired to adapt a Paul Thoreau novel into a TV series. So we wrote the pilot for that. And I'm also in the middle of a novel. Without giving away everything, what's the novel about? Take a guess. <laughs> it's about the Stanford Business School. 
Yeah, it's funny you should say that because the idea came to me when I was working at Stanford Business School and it required so much abstract thinking because we would take this professor research, these really dense things on like auction theory and the organizational behavior of corporations and stuff like that. And I would try to translate them into stories that were palatable and meaningful to a general business audience. And then I'd come home from work, throw my surfboard in my car, drive to the beach and paddle out and just completely shut off the linguistic abstract side of my brain and turn on the animal lizard side of my brain where I was just kind of responding to the moment. And I thought, well, I want to write a story that spans those two worlds. So the main character is a lifeguard and a surfer who lives here in Half Moon Bay. And the secondary character is a professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And it's about kind of the meaning of those two worlds and also Silicon Valley and its grotesque negative influence on the coast side here. One thing we haven't talked about a lot is your brother, Tony. We've mentioned him a couple of times. What's your relationship with him like? I know you got him his first skateboard. Kind of expand on that a little bit. One thing a lot of people don't realize, at first anyway, is that I'm quite a bit older than Tony. I was 13 when he was born. And my sister Pat was 18 when he was born. And our sister Lenore was 21 when he was born. And my mom was 43. So my relationship with him has never had any kind of rivalry attached to it ever because I was taking care of him. I was changing his diapers when I was 14, 15. So I've always been a little bit of a father figure and a brother figure. I mean, increasingly, as we both got older, it became more brotherly. Now, if anything, he's probably the father to me. So I've had the great joy of being in the stands at most of his big victories when he really started making a name for himself. So I've spent hours on the sideline at skate ramps and skate parks. And then on top of that, what he's done with his career beyond skateboarding has just been a source of pride for me and my sisters and everybody who knows him. He went into it for all the right reasons. He stuck with it for all the right reasons. He gives back to it in a way that I don't think people are ever going to be able to quantify. I've said this before, Tony gives thanks every day that he found skateboarding, but I think that skateboarding is really lucky that he, of all people, became the face of the sport. He's kind of an unprecedented sports figure, I think. So I'm a proud big brother. When somebody calls you Tony Hawk's brother rather than Steve, does that bother you at all? Not in the slightest ever. They have no idea how happy I am to hear that. I kind of made a point to carve out my own career outside of my relationship with Tony. I've also done stuff in conjunction with him that I'm proud of, like the foundation. I co-wrote one of his books. So to hear someone think of me first and foremost as Tony's brother and not have my own career, that doesn't bother me at all because I'm happy with my career and satisfied with what I've done. Being a proud older brother and let's say not include skating in this. What's the favorite memory that you have with him? When our father died, we spread his ashes at a beach in San Diego. It was kind of a depressing, gross affair because it was a hot day. The beach was crowded with people. I had his ashes in a big bag. 
we all paddled out and then I kind of just upended this bag and ashes went all over me and all over everybody. And we were all kind of treading water. So no one got to say anything, but Tony had saved a baggie full of our dad's ashes. And he and I just alone without telling anybody went to the Home Depot in Oceanside where my dad used to shop all the time when he was building stuff for us. He built all the Tony skate ramps for decades. And he also built a big patio thing in my backyard. He built these really cool little play tables for my son, Will, and for Tony's son, Riley. He was a really good craftsman and he loved woodworking and all that stuff. And he spent hours in this Home Depot. So Tony and I wandered the aisles of this Home Depot with our dad's ashes until we got to places where we knew he used to shop a lot. We just sprinkled them all over this Home Depot. That was a memory we still talk about. My dad shops a lot of Home Depot too. That's good for me to keep in the memory bank. Yeah, it was cool also because we knew that we could get in trouble for it. It was a little subversive. And we knew that our dad would have been smiling if he knew about it. Steve, I want to thank you for joining the I Play 2 podcast today. This is great hearing about all your stories about surfing, hearing about Tony. And I want to thank you for your time again and look forward to talking to you soon. Take care. Well, really my pleasure. Thanks so much. Great questions. Talk to you soon.